Perfect. Ah, there it's recording. All right. So it is good to be with you again. Uh, and we're excited to continue in our, our Jewish and Christian conversations and perspectives on various topics. Uh, we continue in the topic of martyrdom. This week is from a particularly Christian perspective. And there will be some overlap with various things that uh, Rabbi Spitzer talked about next or last week uh, and some new points of departure. So let's first start. Uh, just with a, a brief overline, uh, uh, overview outline, we'll talk about uh, the, pro the progression of the meaning for the word martus, which is uh, where we get the word martyr. We'll look at the first example of uh, someone who died for the faith in the New Testament. Uh, talk about the concept of Jesus as a martyr. Uh, an interesting uh, pericope of scripture from Revelation 6 about martyrs, uh, continuing evolution of martyrdom, some uh, big and uh, well-known examples of martyrs from the Christian faith, and then takes on martyrdom from both evangelical and progressive uh, Christians. So we'll try to cover uh, quite a lot, uh, scratching the surface here, and sometimes uh, digging deep into these topics. So first, with the progression of the meaning of the word martus, uh, it starts in the earliest era with, uh, with really with witness. Uh, so there were, so if you saw something taking place, you would be called a martyr, uh, a martus. Did you see that happen? Are you a martus? Yes, I'm a mar I'm a martus. Um, and then eventually that became, um, made a progression in language to one who was killed for their faith. They witnessed to their faith. And then in between those distinct eras, we've got this strange, what I call liminal space in between, where it can, it's kind of fuzzy. It's not quite this, it's not quite that, it's kind of in between. Um, so witness by itself refers to that legal meaning um, I, I witnessed this taking place. We also see this um, usage, especially in the Septuagint and in a majority of the New Testament. Um, then moving on to one who was killed, we see that in early Christian literature um, and is retroactively applied to those who were killed for their faith. Um, and that in between time, when it's not quite one or the other, um, but kind of both, we see that taking uh, being used in the book of Acts and the and uh, Revelation. So, uh, Martus as a witness, uh, this we, we is pretty much in in um, in a legal aspect. So, witnesses give uh, evidence in a trial, um, and so they're so to give some substantiation for legal transactions for confirmation uh, in the finalizing and signing of agreements. That is the earliest understanding of Martus. But then even within that idea of witness, there is a slight progression beyond a legal sphere to the wider world of public and private relationships. Um, and, and at a certain point, there is just at the edge before it starts to um, make the transition later to our modern day understanding, there is this sense of Martus as um, the proclamation of views or truths of which the speaker is convinced. Um, so rather than 
I saw this taking place, uh, and that makes you the martus. In this case, martus means uh, I believe this is true. I didn't see it with my own eyes. I wasn't there in the flesh, but I believe this to be true. And that is the understanding um, for Christian martus, um, that they that didn't necessarily see something take place, but they are convinced of its truth. Um, so continuing to, to talk about uh, Martus in the earliest tradition, we see, and there's some related words here. I'm, sometimes I'll say Martus, sometimes I'll say Martyria. They're, they're, they all go back. They're kind of the same um, words, um, kind of a word family. They overlap, like martyr and martyrdom um, are, are related. So these Greek words are related as well. We, we see in the Septuagint, which is, uh, for those who may not know that term, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and in the Septuagint, the, the noun martyria occurs about a dozen times, uh, rendering the Hebrew word aid, as in Exodus 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So you shall not bear false martyr or aid against your neighbor. Um, but there's this strange time in which anytime we talk about translations of the scriptures, uh, translations of anything, there's always some funny things that take place. And one of them is uh, around this word, um, because from the word aid, meaning witness, uh, the translator saw, oh, moaid, um, that must be like witness or testimony. It must be a related word, um, but there it was a cut. So in translation process, there was actually an inaccurate rendering of it. Um, and so when they started talking about the Ark of the Covenant, or excuse me, the Tent of Meeting, I'm jumping ahead here. In the Hebrew, it was Ohel Moed, but in the Greek, uh, they translated it as Teskenon to Marturion, the tent of testimony. So it's a slight difference, um, but what's nice, what's, what's interesting about this is that the Hebrew phrase implies the tabernacle is where the Lord wished to meet his covenant people, but the Greek rendering has its own logic, since the tabernacle is the place where the tablets were kept, uh, tablets of the testimony were kept. Um, and this all comes from the New, New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology and Exegesis. Uh, and, and yes, the, the Ark of the Covenant here as well is referred to as the box of the testimony or uh, the box of the martyr, right? Same, same similar, similar uh, words being used here, of course, in the earliest sense of testimony and witness, not in our modern sense of, of one who died for their faith, but just interesting usage here. Now moving on to um, Luke and Acts. Uh, so Luke was one of the evangelists, one of the four evangelists. Uh, that means gospel writers telling the stories of Jesus. But Luke did something special. Luke also composed the book of Acts detailing um, beyond uh, Jesus's earthly life and he talks about the life of the early church. And he says at one point near the end of, of Luke, you are witnesses of these things. You are, mar um, again, marturia of these things. Um, and 
yeah, so I'm just going to read this. For Luke, the witnesses of the, are those who have been commissioned by Jesus with the proclamation of the message of the kingdom. They are more precisely defined as witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and his deeds. Thus, Luke is no longer using the word martus for witnesses of facts, but specifically for those who are eyewitnesses of the risen Lord and who by this very qualification are authorized as his witnesses among the nations. And it soon becomes clear that the way of a witness is a way of rejection, suffering, and possibly also of death. So here's a uh, a furthering nuance of the earliest understanding. This is that strange middle space, the liminal space. Martyr starts to take on, and witness starts to take on this idea of witnessing to uh, being eyewitnesses of the the risen Lord. So uh, those who who were witnessing Jesus's uh, resurrection, they were. Um, there was a slight distinction. Yeah, you might be witnesses in in a legal context, but here. There's a special group of people who have witnessed the resurrection. And of course, that moves us on to um, Luke's second book, the book of Acts, chapter six, where we read about the first, um, really the first person who uh, died for the Christian faith in our tradition, and that is Stephen. So Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. You can read all this uh, at a later point, but essentially he got um, he got into a disagreement with those uh, some folks in the synagogue, uh, and they ultimately confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. So that's Acts chapter six, and then jumping over, jumping ahead to Acts chapter seven. When those in the council heard all of these things that Stephen had said, they became enraged and ground their teeth at him. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God, excuse me. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So you see in this picture here, this is Stephen looking up into heaven. Uh, seeing God the Father, Jesus the Son at God's right hand. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. They dragged him out of the city, began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And I have to wonder if in this rendering, you see in Stephen's right hand, there's this strange light emanating from it. I have to wonder if that refers to that very verse. Receive my spirit. Then he knelt down, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. So this is traditionally the first under, the first story of uh, someone who died for the Christian faith. And of course, this connection here, we can't uh, overlook um, there at this very important scene in Acts, um, all of the people laid their coats down at the feet of a young man named Saul, who also is called Paul. And just in the, a few chapters later, um, we meet him and he, he uh, has a conversion experience, sees Jesus, meets Jesus on the road. And ultimately, uh, Paul becomes one of the most prolific authors uh, and writes a majority uh, if you're talking about numbers of books of the uh, New Testament, he writes a majority of them.
So coming back to this progression of the meaning, here we are in this liminal space in between where the word, uh, actually I should clarify with Stephen, at no point in, in this story, even though we would call him the first martyr, at, uh, chronologically in, in, in Luke's day, the word martyr has yet to take on that full meaning of one who has died for their faith. And so he is not called a martyr in the modern sense. Um, yeah, so there's that distinction there. Um, yeah. And then this was a new concept for me. I have never actually heard of Jesus being referred to as a martyr. Um, and I, I, I think I leaned too heavily into the later meaning of martyr and not enough into the early meaning. And so it, um, and in that liminal space, I, I never thought about the, that before two weeks ago. So, um, but in Revelation 1.5, in the Greek here, kaiapa Yesu Christu hamartus hapistas. So this is, uh, this is the opening of the book of Revelation and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, hamartas, here you see martyr, uh, hamartas hapistas. So Jesus is called a faithful witness, um, and that's in the earliest sense that Jesus is being a witness of, of, of what? That's kind of the question. What is he being a witness of? Um, does he attest to the coming kingdom of God, the eschaton, the end of time? We're just not sure. Um, but Eusebius, who is probably one of the most well-known early church historians, he wrote of early Christians that they were so eager to imitate Christ that they gladly yielded the title of martyr to Christ, the true martyr, the firstborn from the dead. So um, at a certain progression, a certain time, um, the early church uh, post-Stephen, right, the, the number of martyrs continued to grow and grow. Um, and martyrs were venerated, and there, there was this connection, even though during the time of Christ, Christ was not called a martyr in the sense of one who died for faith, um, there was this sense of um, being applied retroactively to Christ as a martyr in both senses of the word. Um, Then, and I'll, I'll take, a, take a pause after this uh, Revelation 6 and we can maybe talk. I still have more, more things to um, share with you, but I know I'm throwing a lot of material at you here. Um, so Revelation 6 has one of the uh, a strange scene. So Revelation, very briefly, Revelation is uh, apocalyptic in nature. It's akin to the second half of Daniel. Um, parts of uh, Ezekiel, uh, where there's all this imagery being used that you're not quite sure what to make of it, uh, and it's um, it's it's very it's almost coded language, um, and yeah. So there's this talk of opening of the seals, and in Revelation six, it says, "When he, being Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I, the writer of Revelation, names." whose name is John, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? 
They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters, who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed. So it is this strange... Um, it's this strange scene. Uh, there's, there's, there's a slight, there's this beauty to it, but it's this violent beauty. It's, it's quite hard to, to really figure out where to land on this uh, passage. Um, those who had died for their faith, not yet really being called martyrs, by the way, uh, that's a retroactive title we're giving to them. Um, but those who had died for their faith are given this special place of prominence. Uh, it, it is this is this scripture is outlining here saying that they are um, um, they are there at, below the throne um, the altar of the souls of those who had been slaughtered by the word of God so uh, they're there at the throne in heaven have the special place they're specially together separated from um, the rest so uh, how about we actually how about we pause there for a moment and see um, if anyone has any questions um, or thoughts so far, it looks like I don't think I have ability to. I see Ed Irving lifting up a finger. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, I don't. I, can you unmute yourself or maybe Julie can? There we go. Yeah, there we go. Uh, when you were talking about Acts 7, yes, you said that Stephen had seen the Son of God next to God. So he saw God? So the, the, passage, the passage says, um, where was it there? So he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So if I would, I, I would imagine that they're not claiming that a human in the flesh is actually beholding God. Instead, uh, that Stephen beheld the kavod Adonai, right? The glory of God. Um, okay. So it's, 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 so how do we understand that? Maybe that's the brightness around God, but we can't really see God um, because we know from Exodus, no one can see God and really live, even though he's at the point of death. So is he, I don't know. It, but I, I would imagine that what Luke is really getting at there in that verse is saying he's not really seeing God the Father from the Christian understanding. Uh, he's seeing the glory around God and then seeing Jesus off to God's right. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Any other rabbi? Can I, can just, just as a, a flight of fancy on that conversation, uh, going back to the Exodus thing where it suggests that you can't see God's face. It really talks about a predicate God. You see what God causes to have happen. Mm. So from a Christian point of view, if you believe that Jesus died and was resurrected and is now up in heaven, then what you're seeing is the predicate of God. You're seeing something that, that God caused to happen that is really miraculous. Mm. And I think from that, from that standpoint, we could say it is, as you said, kavod Adonai. And, and by the way, kavod Adonai, uh, speaking in Greek is a, a clerical way of keeping people from knowing what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but it's good. It's good. It's very it's good. good. It's good. So, Can I throw a, just an observation. Absolutely. 
Uh, obviously, the, the New Testament is something that is not something that is that, that I'm really immersed in. And, and I, uh, from our clergy groups, it's always interesting to sit uh, with individuals for whom it's a primary text uh, and, and to uh, hear what it means to them and to see how it impacts them and so on and so forth. Um, one of the things that you were talking about with regards to Stephen Martyr, uh, to Stephen, whom we now call Stephen Martyr, uh, um, is the story that is told about Stephen is almost a typology of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, uh, as, as Stephen is about to die, he says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Yep. Uh, it, right. And we have to remember that much of Hebrew Bible and, and uh, Christian Bible really is written as typologies, is not written as actual history. So when you're talking about the evolution of the term martyr, one of the things that we're talking about is the evolution of the symbols that represent our faith. Um, and, and I right. think that's really uh, very, very important. Uh, it's important for Jews to understand, and, and I don't mean this with any, any lack of charity, but some Jews find it very difficult to understand how Christians can believe in the story of Jesus. It doesn't make sense to us. Sure. Um, and yet we short, we, we play short shrift with our relationship with our neighbors if we don't try to at least appreciate how deeply and how meaningful that is uh, uh, to them. So um, that's my comments. Yeah. So <clears throat> It's it's a uh, returning to your your conversation regarding Stephen, comparing the story of Stephen and Jesus's deaths. Uh, there certainly are parallels there. Um, you know, when Jesus says, uh, "Father, and I receive you know my spirit," um, and uh, Stephen says the same. And, and there's there's there are many similarities there. Um, and it's hard to know. To your point, uh, Rabbi, it's hard to know. At what point are those connections being made after the fact typologically to really underscore and highlight the similarities? Um, or is it that they actually took place and Stephen really knew the story and knew what Jesus said and was, you know, in his death, he was thinking of what Jesus said. It's hard to know if it's being done um, after the fact or if it's, it's true to the historical narrative, but um, it's what we've got. So, uh, Okay, if there's uh, no other questions, I don't see anything else. I don't see anything in the chat. So I'll get back to uh, sharing the, where is it? There it is. So the concept of martyrdom then um, evolves. Um, and this is beyond, this is a, a mar with the sense of martyrs, those who are killed for their faith, that that really does evolve because those who have been martyred are venerated as having sacrificed the most for their faith. And as I read a moment ago, they retain this special place in heaven. So says revelation chapter six. Um, and those who are left behind, those who did not die, uh, have not died as martyrs yet, perhaps uh, they view that as a high achievement, something even to perhaps strive for. Um, and there are stories of putting uh, Christians in the early days of the church, putting themselves in harm's way um, so as to perhaps be most honored in the afterlife. It gets a little strange there. 
Uh, and so the group of martyrs, back to Revelation 6, um, martyrs form this, this exclusive club of heroes of the faith. Um, and now we'll talk about in just a moment, um, almost all of the early apostles who are Jesus's closest disciples, almost all of them are killed for their faith uh, and many more in the years after. Um, and it's especially after Jesus's ascension, right, uh, which starts the book of Acts and the early church era, prior to the time of Constantine, which Constantine embraced Christianity. And so the, the um, embrace, em, embracing of Christianity changed the dynamic between empire and faith. Um, and so in that middle time of about two to 300 years, there were a large number of Christian martyrs. Um, although it's in modern day, it's, it's being debated by scholars um, as perhaps some of the numbers are inflated and some are legendary in nature. Obviously we know some did die. We have records of that, but exactly how many it's hard to really know. So, um, briefly going over to talking about the 12 apostles. I won't talk about all of these, um, but uh, here are the, the 12 um, apostles as well as Paul, number one, who we talked about a few moments ago, Saul, um, who is also called Paul. He wasn't uh, one of Jesus's 12 disciples, but he is traditionally called an apostle because he was so important um, in, in the early church. He was probably beheaded, some were crucified, crucified upside down, stabbed, flayed with knives, hung, stabbed, crucified, uh, burned to death. Uh, the only one of the 12 disciples who tradition, and these are all traditional stories. Some of these are well after the fact of that they, well after the, the deaths actually would have occurred. Um, so it's hard to really know uh, how these folks really died. Um, and the only, but the only one who tradition would say died of natural causes would be John. Uh, and here is, since Rabbi talked about Caravaggio last week, I had to pull in uh, Caravaggio's crucifixion of St. Peter. And what's interesting about this, if you see, he is put, being put onto a cross, but the story of Peter, who was one of Jesus's closest disciples, um, when he was going to be crucified, he said, uh, that's okay. That's okay. Sure. Go ahead and crucify me, but I don't want to be crucified like Jesus was crucified. I want you to hang me on the cross and hang the cross upside down, uh, which is a, um, which is his way to say, I am not worthy to die in the same way as Jesus, my Lord. I want, if you're going to kill me this way, uh, I, I want it to be different. Um, so um, for about the next 10 minutes, I will talk about some early Christian martyrs and then uh, I'll turn things over to, to Rabbi to, to provide some commentary and open up for questions. Um, after Stephen um, recorded in Acts 6 and 7, after his martyrdom, uh, probably the, the next... Uh, martyr who we really have his story was Polycarp. And I'm going to scan this. This is all there. And these PowerPoint presentations, I'm glad to share. Um, 
So if you say, I didn't catch that, I want to see that again, just shoot me a, a message and I'm glad to share these with you. So Polycarp lived at the end of the age of the original apostles. So we had Jesus, we had Jesus, we had the apostles, all of his disciples and students. And when they were uh, being killed and dying out, Polycarp was on the scene and he really helped to make that critical transition to the next generation, the second generation of believers. Um, but he did not know Christ in the flesh, so he, uh, but he believed and was um, a, a bishop. Uh, it's the, the tradition says that he was actually a disciple of John, the very John that died of natural causes. Um, so it's hard to know. But very late in life at the age of 86, for some reason, we don't quite know why, he was arrested by Roman officials uh, and his friends pleaded with him to, to go into hiding and to flee. But he said, um, uh, he, he went off and prayed and received some sort of vision, so the tradition says, and whatever he saw or heard, we just don't know. But he, what he reported was, I must be burned alive. Uh, Roman soldiers discovered where Polycarp was, came to his door, and uh, Polycarp uh, said, God's will be done. And the soldiers came in. He was escorted to uh, proconsul Statius Quadratus, who interrogated him. They had an interesting conversation back and forth. Quadratus lost, lost his temper and threatened Polycarp, saying, you're going to be thrown to the wild beasts, burned at the stake. And Polycarp just told Quadratus that while the proconsul's fire lasts a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly, he slyly added, cannot be quenched. Uh, Polycarp concluded, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. So soldiers grabbed him uh, to nail him to a stake, but Polycarp stopped them saying, leave me as I am. That is, don't, na don't nail me to the stake. Um, and he says, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved. So he's standing there on the, the, the here near the stake. The fire is about to be lit. And he says, don't even bother nailing me here because this is where I'm supposed to be. So he prays aloud, the fire's lit, his flesh is consumed. And this is a strange line, but the chronicler of his martyrdom said, that it was not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. So that was the experience of one of the chroniclers, one yeah. of the uh, witnesses to the martyrdom here. Uh, yeah, which is a, a funny thing. So, uh, and the account concluded of that chronicler saying that Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone, even spoken of by heathens in every place. Um, and and one one more point while I'm there, and this it's a little later, but Tertullian, who was an early um, church father, wrote also um, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so, to that last line, um, that Polycarp's death is remembered by everyone. That's part of, um, at least from a Christian understanding, that's part of the reason that martyrdom is allowed to take place because it gives those around a sense that this is something worth dying for. And so Tertullian's later phrase of the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. When martyrs are killed, those around witness and, and, and 
understand that this is a, a faith worth dying for. And so um, the church grows. And that's part, that's what early martyrs would say is, um, val is part of the reason it's worthwhile to allow oneself to be martyred, not just to be in this exclusive club, but so that the church uh, might grow, others might come to faith. So uh, moving on to Saints Felicity and Perpetua. Um, so here, here they they're here um, at, uh, in an icon here. And uh, St. Perpetua kept a diary during her last days while she awaited execution. Uh, her diary is one of the oldest, most reliable histories of a martyr's suffering um, uh, after, that is, Polycarp. And it was passed down to encourage other Christians to witness to the world with their lives, going back to Tertullian's point from just a moment ago. And the account records that in uh, Carthage, Africa, in the year 202, when Emperor Severus uh, issued an anti-Christian law, right? This is before Constantine. It's in that, uh, the age of the martyrs, right? Um, in the year 202, um, for, he was forbidding anyone to be baptized, forbidding anyone to become a Christian. And so Perpetua here depicted in the green, lightish blue, green. She was 22 years old. She was a catechumen, which means that she was studying to become a Christian. She was also the mother of an infant child. And this is where the, the story gets a little sad. And, um, but she was arrested with four other catechumens, including Felicity here behind her in the red, who was her slave woman. Uh, who's about to give birth to a child. All were tried and sentenced to be thrown to the wild beasts in the amphitheater during a national holiday, and their deaths would be scheduled along with sports events and various games. Uh, Perpetua, uh, Perpetua's father was a wealthy pagan, and he pleaded with her to offer sacrifice to the pagan gods so she could go free, but she refused, saying, Father, do you see this water jar or whatever it is standing here? Could one call it by any other name than what it is? Well, in the same way, I cannot be called by any other name than what I am, a Christian. Uh, while they were awaiting death, Perpetua and her companions were baptized, another thing against the law here. And shortly before the execution, Felicity gave birth to a baby girl. Um, during childbirth, she cried out in pain, and someone having heard uh, someone hearing her asked how she would ever endure the suffering of martyrdom. And she replied, now it is I who suffer what I am suffering, but then there will be another in me who will suffer for me because I will be suffering for him. And as I read that line, it, it did make me think of um, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? It's the being uh, in, in, there's someone else there in the fire with, with them. Um, and on the day of their execution, the martyrs left their prison, quote, joyfully as though they were on their way to heaven and entered the arena where they were killed before the cheering crowd. Perpetua and Felicity were beheaded and the others were killed by wild beasts. So quite the story for Saints Felicity and Perpetua. Uh, well, we could be here all day talking about various other martyrs of the faith, the Christian faith. Uh, I want to jump to the modern era. Dietrich, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was from Germany. Um, and of course, after the defeat of World War I, the subsequent economic depression, Hitler appeared to be the nation's answer to prayer. 
appeared to be uh, to most Germans, but one exception was theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was determined not only to refute this idea, but also to topple Hitler, even if it meant killing him. Um, he was a part of a group called the Confessing Church, along with Karl Barth and Martin Niemüller. Uh, Martin Niemüller is the one who uh, penned that famous little, um, it's not a poem, but you know, first they came for the communists and I wasn't a communist, so I didn't say anything. And then they came for me and there was you know, that whole thing. Martin Niemüller is uh, most well known today for, for that. And uh, the Confessing Church put together a document um, essentially refuting the claims of the, the church, the German church, which was very much in support of the Nazis. Um, but, this, but there was the Confessing Church, which denounced um, what the majority church was really supporting uh, in, at the uh, level of, of the, the government. Um, and Bonhoeffer taught pastors in an underground seminary, right? So he's part of this confessing church. He's not part of the larger German church. He's part of this confessing church. Um, and he under teaching pastors in an underground seminary called the Finkenwalde. Uh, and after it was closed, he began to change his strategies. Um, and he had been a pacifist, but um, kind of changed gears and started by signing up to be part of the German secret service, serving as a double agent. Uh, he became a plot to, he became part of a plot to overthrow and later to assassinate Hitler. Bonhoeffer, uh, though, was never at the center of these plans. His, eventually his efforts, uh, mainly his role in rescuing Jews was discovered and uh, in April of 43, he was um, put into Tegel Prison, spending two years there, uh, eventually being transferred to Buchenwald and then um, to the extermination camps at Flussenberg. Uh, and in April of 45, one month before Germany surrendered, he was hanged with six other resistors. Uh, and the interesting story, a uh, decade later, a camp doctor who witnessed this hanging described the scene writing this. The prisoners were taken from their cells. The verdicts of court-martial read out to them through the half-open door in one, of, one room of the huts I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer and then climbed up the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in just a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. So uh, that's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, here are others uh, from a more modern era uh, and from different places around the world. Uh, Oscar Romero, who was an archbishop in El Salvador, uh, who spoke um, out for the rights of the people, very big uh, promoter of social justice in El Salvador. Uh, and he was uh, criticized many times by powerful forces in El Salvador. And he was ultimately um, shot while in the middle of celebrating the mass in this, in a, uh, in this church service, and he was uh, 
martyr in 19, martyred in 1980. Uh, just a few years ago, uh, there were the group uh, now called the 21 Holy Martyrs of Libya. Uh, this is a group of Coptic Christians, uh, and they were uh, kidnapped and beheaded by uh, ISIL. Uh, 2015. So from the early days of the church through to today, there are uh, many stories we could tell um, of, of those being martyred. Um, I'll briefly mention these and then pass things over to, to Rabbi that this is from both, uh, this is from more evangelical um, corner of the church, uh, an organization called the Voice of the Martyrs a nonprofit organization dedicated to um, serving the persecuted church throughout the world today. Those who are Christians, but the governments may not want them to be Christians. Um, and it was founded in 1967 by Pastor uh, Wumbrandt, who was imprisoned in Romania uh, because of his faith. And they were eventually uh, ransomed out of Romania and thereafter uh, established a global network of missions of which the Voice of the Martyrs is a part. Um, and on the other uh, end of this, there's a, I found an interesting quote uh, in a book by Brian Zond, who is a uh, Mennonite uh, pastor. So more uh, from a, within, within Mennonite tradition from a more progressive Mennonite bent. Uh, from an interesting book called Postcards from Babylon, The Church in American Exile, that came out just a few years ago. And he wrote this, and then with this I will end. He wrote, uh, when Jesus enjoins us to take up our cross and follow him, he is inviting us to join him in the risk of love. But what about those who want a risk-free Christianity of guaranteed security? If we are unwilling that we or our children should ever have to suffer for the name of Jesus, we concoct a Christianity where martyrdom is out of the question. And when martyrdom is no longer considered a possibility, we turn Christianity into a safe and anodyne civil religion in the service of the empire. This is not the risky and robust Christianity of Peter and Paul, of Perpetua and Felicity, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Oscar Romero. For the Christian, martyrdom is always on the table. We signed up for the possibility of martyrdom with our baptism. In fact, in our baptism, we have already died with Christ. But because the one who was crucified, forgiving his enemies, is the king of glory raised from the dead, Christians believe that no matter what darkness and hate may do, in the end, light and love will win. So... Wow. Ooh. May I make some comments? Absolutely. Yeah. Turn the things over to you, uh, Rabbi. Thank you very much. First of all, uh, Michael, thank you very much for uh, a real tour de force. It was fascinating. And as I mentioned before, uh, when we can actually listen to each other and begin to compare stories and see how they live. Um, from my time at Walsh, we uh, studied... Uh, some Christian foundational constitutional documents. One of them was called Gaudium et Spes. And in Gaudium, it says, the more we see the differences in the world, the more you recognize that we're the same. And, and that just began to flow out for me uh, over and over and over again. I'd like to make a couple comments about things that you said uh, and taught, and then come back to a couple questions that I have. And 
I don't know that we'll have time to talk about them, but they might be things that the people who are, are watching with, uh, with a spouse or a friend or whatever might want to uh, talk about with each other. Uh, the first thing that jumped out at me uh, so clearly uh, is when you were talking about the 12 uh, apostles, the 12 martyrs uh, of the early church, um, their stories of being beheaded and stuck and burned and pulled. And when you think about it, if you'll remember last week, I talked about the 10 Jewish martyrs um, and, and uh, what happened to these rabbis. I want you to remember that that's the same period of time. Mm. That first and second period, century period of time, uh, when the Romans are in power, they presented the opportunity for martyrdom to Jews, to nascent Christians, to all kinds of people. So it's interesting that we share that tradition. And so often we share that, that tradition for the same reasons. Why were these uh, uh 12 Christian uh, people martyred. Why were they, were they killed? Well, because this one taught something. This one did right. something that was Christian. The Romans constantly tried to outlaw the practice of other faiths, probably because if people practice those other faiths, like Judaism or Christianity, to the rejection of the Roman emperor, uh, that was considered by the Romans to be uh, disloyal and treasonous. So, right. As soon as we said there is somebody other than Caesar, Caesar is not God, uh, we, we, I mean, Jews and Christians, people of the Abrahamic faiths, if we will, at that time, uh, uh, set themselves up for this possibility uh, for martyrdom. So uh, it's interesting that we really do share not only of the same time period of peril, but in many respects, the same reasons for peril. Now, I've got to try Absolutely. to read my notes um, while you may do that, if I if I could yeah. just piggyback on that, John, to say that in that early Roman era, uh, of course, being a citizen is also uh, your pagan worshiping of the pagan gods is assumed. There's this strange melding of of faith and empire. They have to be one. So to be to be anything other than worship, to, to worship anyone other than the pagan gods means that you are uh, being disloyal and uh, unpatriotic, as it were. And that's, that's really why, to, your, to, to the right. point, uh, why Christians and Jews were both being uh, killed for their faith in those early days is because it was seen as antithetical and uh, trying to undermine the Roman um, Well, because uh, if, you, if you take a look at, at uh, Roman religion, Roman religion was really very tolerant. You could go be a Roman, sure. living in Rome, and send your legions into Gaul, and the Gauls could continue to worship trees as they, if they wanted, as long as they would also worship Jupiter, the gods of, the sure. gods of Rome. Uh, and the difference between that kind of religion and Judaism is Judaism believed there's only one God, you can go and do what you want, but there's only one right. God. And Christianity right. believed there's only one God and you better not worship any other God. Uh, some of the early, uh, not the early, some of the contemporary authors write about uh, Christianity as being a God-killing faith, meaning it killed the pagan gods. Right, yeah. Um, and, and you see that, you know, when you go to Rome today, you'll find churches that are built on top of Roman pagan temples yeah. to obliterate the previous, uh, uh, previous faith. Uh, so, again, uh, we, we share that kind of thing. Um, 
The other thing, uh, and I already talked about the typology of some of these stories. Um, if we can break away from the idea that the stories in Hebrew Bible and the stories in Christian Bible, while they may have kernels of truth and be uh, evolved in real, real, uh, uh, real events, uh, we didn't have people there with micro cassettes that were actually giving us the words or taking pictures. So the, the stories are always informed trying to teach something. Right. And when you look at the Jewish stories and the Christian stories, they're trying to teach the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I believe they're trying to teach is that there is meaning to life and that meaning is so real it's worth mm. suffering for. Mm. Uh, um, uh, and I think that that's something that yet yet happens uh, uh, today. Uh, people say that uh, I would rather die than sacrifice a greater truth or a greater blessing that is here, whether it's the blessing of eternal life or die for freedom and liberty or, or those kinds of things. Um, one of the things that I spoke about uh, last week in terms of the binding of Isaac, as I, I told some some of the midrash midrashic stories, rabbinic stories. What I didn't tell you was the story about Abraham getting up in the morning and running into his wife going into the kitchen. And Sarah says, Abe, you're up early today. Where are you going? He says, well, um, I thought I would take, a, take our son Isaac to the yeshiva of Shem and Aver, these two great teachers who mythically taught Torah during the time of Abraham before, of course, Torah had been given. But nonetheless, the rabbis have fertile imaginations. And she says, what do you mean? She says, you know, our son Isaac is a teenager now, and he's never been to religious school. He's never studied our faith. And she says, well, I'm a little nervous about this, but if you're going to take him to go to Sunday school, please go ahead. All right. I've minimize the story a little bit but what's the point of the story the point of the story is that religious education and truth is dangerous when you come to an ultimate truth of god who you creates all who unites all who demands certain kinds of behavior and so on and so forth you will run afoul of people in this world who either have different beliefs or uh have a financial stake or a political stake or an ego stake in things and your religious faith can be dangerous and that's what we see with all of these martyrs the requirements of our faith sometimes causes us to put ourselves in literally mortal peril uh, because of the time i want to ask or just raise a couple questions and i have it written down here as martyrdom questions uh, and there basically are, I think, four or five of them. The, the first question um, is, what is the motivation for people to sacrifice their lives as witness? Uh, we've given a whole bunch of motivations uh, before. Uh, one of the earliest ones, when I talked about Hannah and, and her seven sons from the Maccabees, just before that story is the story of an old Jewish man. And he was a very pious man. And he had lots of friends amongst the, the Jews and also amongst the Gentiles in the area. And when the soldiers came and said to him, will you please eat pork? And he said, no. His friends came to him and they said, why don't you just pretend to and you can get off. They won't kill you. They won't hurt you. 
And his answer was, I'm a guy of 80 or 90 years old, whatever the age was, and I've lived a pious life all of this time. If I were to die now, what would the young people say about my belief? They would say, it was phony. It wasn't real. We don't have to learn from it or follow it or emulate it. And so because he wanted to teach that lesson about the power of his faith, as you said, that, that he uh, witnessed that it was true, he gave up his life instead. So we can ask questions about what are the motivations? Um, some of the motivations, you know, it was very interesting what you said before, that there were people who sought martyrdom. Let's go into battle because if we're lucky, we'll be killed. Um, you know, that's an interesting motivation to me, which raises another question. And the other question has to do with the distinction between martyrdom and suicide. It's a very, very difficult thing. The rabbis dealt with this when we talked about Masada. Uh, because suicide, the definition that we would use is the willful destruction of the image of God in oneself. I know that I am God's creature, cre creation, but I willfully will destroy that image of God within me. That's the greatest sin that, uh, that the rabbis could think of. Um, there are only a couple reasons why one would sacrifice their life in a situation like that, for sexual impropriety, to bow down to idols, and something else. Um, it's probably, I'll probably be confronted with that situation, and I won't remember, and I'll live. Uh, murder. It was murder. Murder. Thank you. Uh, of a specific person, right. Thank you. Um, was that John? Sounds like it. That sounds yeah. like John. Thank you, John. Um, the, uh, uh, therefore, on Masada, for example, uh, the story was told through Josephus that you had people who picked lots and would kill everybody else, but only the last person, one last person, would actually commit suicide. So there's a question about what is the relationship between martyrdom when you have a choice, when they come to you and they say, eat pork or, bow down to or, uh, do this or that or, and you choose willingly and knowingly to sacrifice your life. So uh, that's a, a question to, to talk about, I think. Um, and we talked about relative good before. Um, the last thing that I think I would mention here are actually two other things. Um, when you mentioned, uh, Michael, uh, beautifully, the connection between the Hebrew text of aid to witness and moed, uh, as in the ohel moed, the tent of witness, uh, tent of the presence or the tent of meeting, um, and edut, uh, which is testimony. Those are all forms of the same word. And yet when you go into Greek translation, already there are some interpretations and nuances that are added by the other text. So every, every translation is always an interpretation. And I think it's important for us to remember uh, as we go through these texts. Absolutely. Uh, and then the last thing is uh, martyrdom is some kind of a sacrifice. Mm. Um, Certainly the image that we have uh, in, in the story in Genesis of, uh, of Isaac 
is that Isaac was to be a burnt offering, a sacrifice, a gift to God of some sort. Jesus is in some way a gift to human beings. And the whole question about, you know, why Jesus's death would be required uh, is also something that I know Jews contemplate. I would imagine some Christians contemplate. And the very last thing, I think people uh, often think of martyrdom because they believe that there is something after. They have a strong belief that, uh, you know, we're a short time lived, but we're a long time dead. And therefore, uh, Jesus must be resurrected for this to be worthwhile. Um, if Jesus is still in the, in the tomb, uh, yep. it's a political statement and so on and so forth. But if he's resurrected, it's part of that divine mystery. I was reading before we started an article um, in, in uh, this book called Contemporary Jewish Religious Thought. It's a big book. Um, <clears throat> it's an expensive book, therefore it must have authority. Um, it talked about the difficulty that modern Jews, not modern Jews, modern people have between the sense of the ethos of life after death and resurrection and the sense of reality of science that we see. And while we're able to uh, look back at so many of the other things, miracles in the Bible and so on and so forth, and rationalize them away, yet that concept that there is something after we die is so strong, speaks through our lives in so many ways. Um, that to me is just a, a very, very interesting thing. So, uh, may I, M Michael, do you have anything else to say? Because I would like just to announce the next three things that we've got going. Sure. Well, do we have, oh, it's already after five o'clock. I was going to say, do we have any questions? But um, we could have another session because this time Michael went too long. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just, um, oh, you had that last thing there. Oh, yes. So to, to your last point of um, hope for life after death. And I think uh, I, I, I have a feeling and uh, maybe I, I will just speak for Christian martyrs and not speak for, for Jewish martyrs, but I, I, I think they're probably the same answer that if, if we believe that there's nothing after death, um, I think there'd be a lot fewer martyrs. Yes, absolutely. Or uh, almost somehow, nil. Somehow we've internalized this thing, no pain, no gain. Right. Um, and, and that's just an interesting concept. Um, let me just uh, so. tell people who are watching uh, uh, and listening that we have three additional Monday afternoon Zoom uh, lectures planned. Next Monday, the 11th at 4 o'clock, uh, Pastor Michael and I are going to do a session uh, on the Olam Haba, the afterlife, about what Jews and Christians believe about that, what are the traditions about it, and what are the stories about it. Um, and that really sort of is a, a connection with what we're doing today. So that, that should be an interesting and I hope fun uh, uh, discussion. And then on May 18th and June 1st, two Mondays separated by uh, Memorial Day, uh, we're going to be doing two sessions on incarceration. I'm going to do a session on the uh, chaplaincy that I've been undertaking at Mansfield Correctional Institution uh, with some of the words of 
of the inmates who have participated in those programs. And then on June 1st, um, uh, Chaplain Eric Harmon, who is an Anglican priest, is a young man, fine young man, not that he wouldn't be a fine young man, he's a fine young man, um, is going to uh, uh, give a session on the theology of incarceration. Why is it that when um, our, our sages, our prophets, our martyrs, our disciples are in prison, that they write most, they find God, they find transformation in their lives. Uh, and he will be giving those. So those are three sessions that uh, I hope you will think about. Um, and uh, I've already uh, sent a note to uh, uh, Mark Williams, Pastor Williams at Holy Trinity, to find out whether he wants to do a little teaching. And I even asked Rabbi Adlin if he wants to do a little teaching. And we'll see what happens as time goes on. So on behalf of those who watched, I want to thank you, Michael, very, very much. I want to thank Julie for hosting it. Michael, you can send us off. Super. So friends, uh, thank you again for uh, your attendance today. Uh, and I trust that uh, what you learned today is encouraging as you learn about the, the whole of our, and last week as well, that we learn about the history of our faiths and how they differ, how they intersect. But I, I think I'll close with what uh, Rabbi Spitzer said earlier. The more we learn, the more we learn that we are uh, more alike than we once knew. So I hope that, that this time together is showing you that, revealing you that, and reminding you of that. So uh, blessings, friends. Shalom. Shalom. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.